Well, good morning. Are you having a good weekend? Yeah, some people aren't so sure. Some are. Yeah, a few nods. Anyone have to scrape the ice off the car this morning? <laughs> I did. I obviously got here a bit earlier than you did. But it's great to see the sunshine, great to be continuing in our series, The Fear of the Lord. If you're a visitor here or you've joined us online for the first time this morning, you're extra specially welcome. Please say hi to somebody. Uh, We'd love to get to know you if you're in the building. Please message us if you're online. We'd love to say hi to you. Uh, But as we've said, we are um, nearly halfway through our six-week series on The Fear of the Lord. It's a phrase that appears hundreds of times in the Bible. It also appears a lot in the New Testament. It's a very prominent theme. And we believe here at Trinity that Jesus is calling us to explore this theme, to dig into it, to unpack it a bit, to focus on it for a few weeks, for all the reasons that Tim laid out in the first message in this series that you can catch up with online if you weren't here or haven't caught up with it from a couple of weeks ago. Now, I don't know how you're doing if you're beginning to wrestle with this kind of theme, this notion of fearing God. I don't know how uh, you're doing with it, how you're grappling with it, because I do think it is something to be grappled with. I'm finding myself needing to and wanting to grapple with it all over again. And I wonder, I know there is still, because I've been talking to you, there are some of us still wrestling with the sort of basic notion, well, isn't fear bad, actually? You know, isn't fear inherently a bad thing. We've been told 365 times or more than 365 times that by the preachers that we've listened to that there are 365 um, encouragements in the Bibles put there by God to, to, to fear not. We know that, don't we? We're told not to fear. And to top it off, we know that Jesus' uh, best friend, he wrote, writes this uh, little thing in the, his, book, uh, his first letter in the book of 1 John. He says, perfect love casts out all fear. There is no fear, you know, in love. So isn't fear bad? And I'm sure we know as followers of Jesus, for those of us that have been following him for some time, we know that God doesn't want us to fear. Do you know that? Yeah, God doesn't want us to fear. And uh, I don't know about you, but my journey with the Lord, has a lot of it has been about God setting me free from a lot of the fears that have been crippling me. You know, I'm still on that journey, but that's something I've known as I've walked with him, a, a being freed from fears. And even if he hasn't, even if we're not convinced about this thing that Jesus wants to set us free from fear, surely we know that in relationships, fear is a bad thing. You know, surely fear in relationships is a bad thing. I'm wanting relationship with God. Why would knowing God, why would knowing God, who is loving and kind and generous and gracious, Why would fearing him, if he's kind and loving, be a good thing? Surely fear is a kind of an old-fashioned, outdated, sort of slightly abusive concept within a relationship. Certainly, you know, that's what we're encouraged to believe. We instinctively, I don't know about you, shy away from the things that we fear, don't we? You know, if you don't like wasps, or you don't like snakes, or you don't like explosive people, you don't tend to hang out with them, do you? Or, Or stay very close to them, you withdraw from them. Here's the thing that I found helpful in revisiting this uh, theme and exploring it again for this morning. Here's the thing that I found helpful to kind of square this circle. It's part of our human condition and human nature to fear, isn't it? Even babies are born with at least two fears, so the scientists and psychologists would have us believe. They're born with a fear of falling backwards, you know, sticking little hands in the air, and they're born with a fear of loud noises. We're born with fear. And then as we go through life, we add to those fears, don't we? We learn to fear other things as we go. I don't know what you would say are some of your fears. You know, some of us fear spiders. 
We might fear poverty. We might fear failure. We might fear heights. I have a, a husband who's, you get vertigo, don't you? Um, <laughs> some of us fear conflict, being rejected, being abandoned. We might fear disease. We might fear death. We learn to fear all kinds of other things, don't we? We have our own personalized list, and it's quite good to be able to identify what are my particular fears, because God wants to deal with them. Some fears, here's the thing, are good. You know, I'm sure we don't need reminding, but let's remember this. Some fears are good. If I'm standing on the edge of a building, and I'm looking down, or I'm standing on the edge of a cliff by the sea, and I'm looking down, that sense of fear, which doesn't sort of paralyze me, but does, you know, I do feel it, is a good thing, because it makes me step back and stops me from falling off. I tend to go a bit closer to the edge than Tim does. <laughs> Some fears are good things. Others are less good, like the fear of failure that paralyzes us from doing all kinds of things that God might want to invite us into. When God invites us in the Bible not to fear, or more to the point, when he commands us not to fear, he's talking about the bad fears in our life that are going to hold us back and inhibit us and keep us uh, in bondage. But it doesn't mean, he doesn't mean by that that all fear is bad. When he says, do not fear, he's addressing the things that are bad for us. Fear isn't necessarily bad. Fearing the wrong thing is bad for us. And when we find a healthy fear of the Lord, it actually puts all the other fears that we have in, its place, in their place. A healthy fear of God breaks the power of the other fears in our lives. Someone once said, what we fear most is our God. I found that really helpful. Oh, Lord, you know, what do I fear? What we fear most is our God. Oswald Chambers said this, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Well, I'm not sure that that's totally true, but I think that's the destination, that's the direction we're traveling in. Whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. Now, I want to use the term healthy fear of God this morning, because I think actually it's possible to have an unhealthy fear of God. We can be talking about the fear of God and actually have an unhealthy fear of God. We'll come back to healthy fear in a moment. Many years ago, uh, two or three years after I passed my driving test, I was reversing my car, well, it was actually my parents' car, out of the drive at home, very steep drive, it's a very narrow post, and as I was reversing the car, I clipped the car on the side of the post and broke the wing mirror off. And immediately in that moment, the adrenaline started pumping around my body because I knew I was going to have to face my dad about the wing mirror. And I knew it was going to be really bad news. And it was going to be more costly for me than just replacing the wing mirror on the car. <laughs> Not surprisingly, I tried to avoid him for quite a long time until he caught up with me because I knew actually it was going to affect my relationship with him for a period of time. An unhealthy fear of God whether it's a kind of got demonic roots or whether it's got religious roots to it, an unhealthy fear of God will pull us away from him. It will pull us back from him. It will make us withdraw from him. And when John actually, in his little passage, you know, writing to the believers, says, you know, perfect love casts out all fear, because fear has to do with punishment, what he's talking about is the punishment that results in eternal separation from God. He's not talking about, you know, that God might deal with us kindly when I've got something wrong. He's talking about the kind of punishment that was dealt with on the cross. 
Unhealthy fear pulls us away from God. That was my story when I was younger. I don't know if you've heard that little sort of anecdote about, you know, the kids that went into the canteen to have lunch and there was a pile of apples on the table and there was a little sign by the apples saying, take one because God is watching. And then over on another table, there was a pile of biscuits and somebody had stuck a sign in there saying, you can take as many as you like because God's watching the apples. (laughs) It was a bit like that for me growing up. I was convinced that God was kind of out to get me. You know, the minute I did something wrong or the minute I, you know, I sort of made a mistake that he was going to pounce on me because he was watching me. He wasn't watching the apples somewhere else. And so, of course, that made me withdraw from him. It made me draw back from him. I didn't want to listen to him. I wasn't interested in what he had to say because I was convinced he couldn't cope with my mistakes. He couldn't cope with me and he was just going to make me pay for the things I got wrong. That's why we need to be so rooted in the love of God, in the love of the Father. We need to know him as that good father that he is. There's an unhealthy fear that makes us withdraw from God. There's also a kind of unhealthy fear that's basically no fear at all. You know, we touched on this, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago. I think, as Tim said, that's probably the current prevailing mood in our culture right now, in our Christian culture as well. I think we live in a a cultural moment, I would argue, where there's actually no longer any real respect for authority. And of course, we're affected by our cultural waters, aren't we? By our cultural values. And we can bring that into, unwittingly, our relationship with God. John Bevere is a a prolific American author and speaker. Amazing ministry and discipling God's church worldwide. He describes a conference, a three-day conference, that he was speaking at in Brazil a number of years ago. And he was excited to be with with the crowds as they gathered And uh, the worship team was amazing. It was in this venue where there were thousands of people gathered to to worship God. And as the worship was, was continuing, right at the start of this conference, he was just struck by the fact that there was no sense of the presence of God there. There was no sense of the presence of God there at all. And he felt God ask him to confront this right as the conference kicked off. And so he stood up and he he said, as he began his message to the people that were there, because he'd looked around and he'd watched the sort of sense of indifference to God as the worship was going on. He saw people with their hands in their pockets. He saw people on their phones. He saw people talking to each other. So he stood up and he said this to them, how would you like it? Brave man, if while you speak to somebody at a table, they ignore you, they stare at the ceiling as if they're uh, disinterested, or they carry on a conversation with the person next to them. Or if you knocked on your friend's door and you were greeted with a monotone voice saying, oh, it's only you, how keen would you be to hang out with them? How keen would you be to carry on a conversation with them? How keen would you be to actually spend time with them? And he went on to say, do you think the king of the universe is going to manifest his presence or speak in a place where he is not honored and he is not revered and where his word is not honored and his word is not revered? And he goes on to describe the evening and a sense of conviction fell on the place and there was a lot of repentance at the end and the next night the the atmosphere completely changed. The sense of the presence of God was so powerful and miracles happened and people's lives were changed and people got saved and and he says many people to this day that he has gone on to meet uh, describe that occasion as being a really significant turning point and moment in their lives. You know, I find myself challenged by that. How casually do I treat the presence of God? 
I think our cultural moment majors on the fact that, you know, we're all equal and we're all to be treated equal and, and we have equal values in God's eyes. I think we can major on the fact that we should never be made to feel uncomfortable. We should never make anyone else feel uncomfortable. That everyone should be able to decide what's right for them. That judgment, you know, in any form is a terrible thing. And friends, it's a short step from moving from that place to thinking that Jesus will never want to make us feel uncomfortable. He will if it's for our good. When I was given a diagnosis about my cancerous lump a few years ago, I'm sure the doctor didn't take any joy in telling me, but it was for my good. So it could be dealt with. Jesus will call out our sin if he needs to. He'll challenge our motives if he needs to. He'll discipline us in love if he needs to. Because he is kind and loving. And, and, you know, there are some passages in the New Testament, forget the Old Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) We never talk about that story. Acts chapter 5, two, a man and a woman, a wife and a husband who sold some property. They lied to the apostles. They lied in front of the church and they died there and then. We don't talk about that story. In 1 Corinthians 11, 11, Paul talks about the believers in Corinth who were taking communion in an unhealthy way. I don't know exactly what it is. The text doesn't say. I'm sure the commentaries allude to it. But they're taking communion in an unhealthy, irreverential way. And Paul goes on to say, this is why some of you are sick. I'm like, whoa, we don't ever talk about that. It's uncomfortable. Jesus, when he heals the man at Bethsaida, the guy who's been, been sick for 38 years, Jesus heals him because he loves him. But then he goes to say as the guy's walking away, stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. Is that a threat? Is that God looking at the apples? Put one foot wrong and I'm out to get you. No. What he's saying is, I love you enough to allow you the freedom to make your own choices but I'm going to let you experience the consequences of your choices. So I want you to know that if you carry on walking in a way that ignores my way, it's going to cost you. They're uncomfortable passages. We don't talk about them very often. And I wonder if that contributes to the, you know, just in the wider church in general to a lack of, you know, fear of God. I don't know. There's some challenging passages. Be good if we look at a few more of them as we go on. So, back to a healthy fear. Tim described, you know, I think it's hard to describe what is a healthy fear of the Lord. You know, it's a theme that permeates the Bible, but there's no neat passage that goes, ooh, it's, it's just this. Tim described it a couple of weeks ago as a kind of wow and a whoa about God being sort of in awe of who he is, his power, his greatness, as well as knowing his love. But I believe while it's maybe not very easy to actually pin down and describe, it's evident in the lives of those who have it. It's evident in the lives of those who have it. So we're going to look at a passage this morning. It might be a familiar story to some of you. To have a look at what it looks like and what it leads to. So if you've got a Bible, uh, we're going to look at Genesis 22. And it's the story of Abraham taking his son Isaac up Mount Moriah. I'm going to read uh, from verses 3 to 12. So God's made his promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going I'm to make you the father of a nation. He miraculously enables Sarah, this is God, to fall pregnant way past the childbearing years. So I don't know, Abraham must be over 100 when this incident happens. But God then tells him on one occasion as they're talking uh, to each other, God says, I want you to go and sacrifice your son Isaac 
uh, on the mountain. So, verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, it was a long journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his dad, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on top of it. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you haven't withheld from me your son, your only son. Now, we're not going to unpack the details in the story. You can do this. You can do that during the week. Maybe some of, us, some of you will do it in life groups. You know, you might want to do it on your own. And I know this is a really unusual request that God makes of Abraham. And again, we're not going to get into that this morning. Some great commentaries, have some conversations with each other. We're not going to get into that. I want us to notice this, though. At the end of the episode, at the end of this particular scenario, God says to Abraham, now I know that you fear me. That what you fear most is being without my blessing, with being without a close connection with me, with being without my presence. I know that you fear that more than anything else. Question, what was the evidence in this story of Abraham's fear of the Lord? It wasn't what he was going to do to Isaac, it was his obedience, wasn't it? It was his obedience. It, verse 3, early the next morning, off he went to do exactly what God had asked. There's an interesting verse, verse in Isaiah 66, verse 2, that says this. This is God speaking. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts. That's what Andrew was talking a bit about last week. And those who tremble at my word. I don't know if we've got that verse there. I will bless those who have humble and contrite words and, um, hearts and who tremble at my word. Interestingly, Fee changed one of the songs this morning to How Great Is Our God. I don't know if you noticed that we were singing about all the earth rejoice and they will tremble at his voice. In my humble opinion, Abraham was a man who trembled at God's word. He was a man who trembled at God's word. Now, I don't think the Holy Spirit is saying here that trembling is a physical thing. Some of us might be trembling because we're freezing cold this morning. I don't know that. You, maybe you're, you know, I'm warming up a little bit because I'm moving around. What he's talking about, Isaiah, about trembling at God's word is an internal response 
to what happens to us when God speaks. You know, when the ground trembles, when there's an earthquake going on, when the, when the plate's underground in an invisible place, when those plates are shifting, there's a trembling on the surface, isn't it? There's a movement that's going on. There's an action that's happening. And I think what Isaiah is talking about here, those who tremble at God's word, are those of us who are moved, who are stirred, who are prompted to action when God speaks. I once got a letter that gave me the final opportunity to pay an electricity bill that had somehow gone unnoticed and gone under the radar for too long. And it was a letter from the bailiff saying, basically, you've got one more chance to pay or we're coming to collect a load of stuff, you know, because of, to, because of your debt. Well, I trembled at this letter. And it wasn't a kind of, oh, you know. It was, it was a letter that got me moving. It prompted me to action. I was grateful for it. You know, it, the word from the electricity, well, it was from the bailiffs, actually, got me moving. And I believe God wants to ask us this morning, Trinity Cheltenham friends, visitors, people who are watching us online, do we tremble at God's word? Does God's word make us tremble? Do we seek it out? Do we treasure it? Do we value it? Do we love it? Do we talk about it? Do we rely on it? Do we need it? Does it move us to action? Do we tremble at God's word? I know I want to rediscover that sense of awe at the word of God. Back to this story. Abraham was somebody who trembled at God's word. He took God's word super seriously because he knew God was serious whenever he spoke. And God's word was more important to Abraham than anybody else's word, than anything else. Friends, do we believe that God loves us? And that God wants the best for us. I hope we would say yes to that. Although we're on the journey of discovering more and more of how deep and how wide and how long and how deep his love is. Do we believe that he loves us? Do we believe that what that means is he's not going to ask us to do anything that is harmful for us. Because he wants the best for us. Abraham did. And his fear of missing God's best for him in that moment was what prompted him to respond. It wasn't that he feared God's punishment if he took an apple. That wasn't what he was fearing. He was fearing missing out on what God had for him, on the blessing that God had for him, of the closeness of his presence if he ignored him. And according to God himself, this was the evidence that Abraham feared God. Three things about Abraham's obedience. Firstly, it was immediate. Did you notice that? He set off the following morning. He didn't organize a meet a prayer meeting to pray about it for weeks. <laughs> he didn't organize a great big party to say, you know, goodbye or whatever. He didn't come up with any kind of excuse as to why God couldn't possibly mean that because God loved him. Why would God ask him to do that? Next morning, off he went. And again, I've been freshly challenged about this just this week looking at this story. God's been asking me to... Um, to push into um, praise and thanksgiving recently over some stuff that is still haunting me from my past that I'm struggling to sort of let go of. You know, it's stuff that I go back and revisit 
you know, over and over again at the moment. And God is challenging me to praise and thank him for those things. And I'm going to be honest, I've had a little bit of a, you know, a tussle with God about, you know, I can thank you and I can praise you, but for those things. And then he showed me a verse from the Bible that I hadn't really noticed where I'm told to not just praise him in all circumstances, but for all circumstances. And it's been a real tussle for me to get to that place of praising him in a re- for, for really painful things. I didn't do it immediately. I started wrestling with it immediately, but I didn't do it immediately. Abraham, he got up next morning, off he went. I wonder, you know, how quick we are to respond to the stuff that God says. Secondly, Abraham's obedience didn't make sense. And if we tremble at God's word and we take it that seriously, sometimes what he asks us to do won't make sense and our obedience won't make sense either. And it seems to me that, again, there's a kind of bit of a cultural wind that we need to try and always make sense of what God says to us or what God says in his word and what he's asking us to do. And unless we can explain it and justify it and prove it with science and everything else, maybe we won't take it as seriously as Abraham did. And apologetics is fantastic and really helpful. But in the end, friends, God will always ask us to do stuff that we don't understand. Why? Because he's trying to trick us? Because he's trying to catch us out? No, no. Because he wants to know whether we trust him. He wants to know whether there's a healthy fear. He wants us to know whether we have a healthy fear of God. Do you know, if I had a £10 note, it's a bit of a cheeky thing to say, but if I had a £10 note for every person that said to me over the years, oh, I can't tithe because I can't afford it, I could afford to pay your tithes for you. God asks to do, us to do stuff that doesn't make sense. And we're so wired to looking at things through our, our human rational reasoning You know, we stand to miss out on some of the blessing and the closeness and the intimacy and the favor of God because maybe we don't respond to some of these things because they don't make sense. There are so many stories of the people in the Bible. Naaman, he was asked to dip in the water seven times to be healed and he was livid. It didn't make sense. Why couldn't the man of God just heal him? Why did he tell him to go and do this? And yet a servant girl who had a fear of God tried to persuade him and he he responded. He went and dipped in the water seven times and he was healed. Peter, he threw his net on the other side, didn't he? And he said, this doesn't make sense, but because it's you, Jesus, I will do it. Why ask Abraham to give up the son that God had given him? It didn't make sense. Abraham didn't understand, but his fear of the Lord meant, I'm going to do it anyway. Is God asking you, at the moment, friend, to do something that doesn't make sense? Is there something going on at the back of your mind, just a thought, a challenge, a command, something you think God might be saying to you and it doesn't make sense? If it doesn't make sense, that doesn't mean it's not God asking you to do it. Chances are it probably means it is him. And the third thing about Abraham's obedience, it was costly. An obedience that trembles at God's word is costly. Not all the time, but sometimes. What God asked him to do, it was really costly, wasn't it? Yeah, I realize this is a challenging passage. The fear of the Lord isn't an easy thing to get our heads around. But again, the cost didn't stop Abraham from obeying. Let's remember again this morning, friends. If we want God's blessing, if we want to walk in close intimacy with him, if we want to be close to him, if we want to know his presence, there are things he's going to ask us to do that are costly. We know that. Many of us know that. 
you know, we've experienced that. Forgiveness is costly, isn't it? Anybody here think forgiveness isn't costly? Resisting temptation. It's really costly. Staying in a marriage that is really painful is really costly. Loving our enemies is costly. Staying in a workplace that God has said, I want you here as my witness, where it's all going wrong and I don't want to be here, is costly. Giving our best you know, to our employers is costly. Leading a life group, if God's tugging at you, is costly. So many things that God asks us to do are costly. Not again because he wants to see whether we'll pay the cost, but because the way into the blessing and the favor and the freedom and the healing or whatever it is that we're praying for goes via a different route than the one that would look obvious. A healthy fear of the Lord, this passage is saying, Isaiah is saying, manifests itself in our trembling at his word. Not critiquing it, not editing it, not ignoring it, not discussing it till we're blue in the face and, do, face and doing nothing about it. But trembling at it so that we're moved into action. Last thing. What does it lead to? You know, from this passage, what does it lead to? And I've said it. There's a beautiful little verse in James 2, verse 23, that, that provides a little comment about this episode in particular. And it describes what Abraham did, and then it says, and Abraham was called God's friend. Friends, a healthy fear of the Lord, that means that we tremble at his word, actually leads us closer into relationship with God. It leads to intimacy with God. It leads to a real and deep friendship with God. I'm sure you don't need me to remind you of that, but I'm going to remind you anyway. Jesus said a similar thing, didn't he? You're my friends if you do what I say. Psalm 25 verse 12. Who then are those who fear the Lord? Well, he'll instruct them in the ways that they should choose. If we fear the Lord, we'll be asking God to instruct us, and he will. I mean, it's common sense really, isn't it? Is there anyone in your life that you have a close relationship with, who disagrees with you, or who ignores you, or who argues with you, or who just isn't particularly interested in anything you have to say. I mean, none of us have a close relationship with people like that. Why would we expect a close relationship with Jesus if his word doesn't really matter to us? A healthy fear of the Lord leads to intimacy. It leads to a close connection, a close walk with God. Is that what we want? I believe it is. And I believe God's wanting to restore a healthy trembling at his word. And of course, allied to this, a healthy fear of the Lord leads to wisdom. You know, somebody once said that, um, you know, being clever is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Being wise is knowing that it doesn't belong in a fruit salad. There's being clever. There's having knowledge. The internet provides us with more knowledge than we have ever had access to. And yet I think we are less wise, actually, as a culture, as people, than we ever have been. Why is that? Because wisdom comes from a fear of the Lord. And a fear of the Lord is manifest in trembling at his word. 
Those of us that want to be wise parents, we will be in God's word wanting to find out what God says, not what Instagram says or what Google says, but what God says. Those of us that want to be wise leaders of businesses, we won't just be reading all the stuff in the leadership journals and everything else. We'll be in God's word, finding God's wisdom. Those of us that want to be you know, wise employers, good friends, whatever else, wherever we want to see God's blessing in our life, if we've got a healthy fear of the Lord, we'll be wanting to know what God says more than what anyone else says. And then putting it into practice, even when it doesn't, doesn't make sense. A healthy fear of the Lord leads us to tremble at God's word. And when we tremble at God's word, we will know intimacy with God and we will be very wise people. And I know that we all want wisdom. Philippians 2 says this, verse 12, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Again, it doesn't, you know, those aren't words that I, I tend to grapple it with very easily. But friends, I believe that God wants to remind us as we go through this series that the holy fear of God is a gift. It is a gift that moves us towards him. It is a gift that makes us wise. It is a gift that keeps us close to him. It is a gift that protects us actually from all kinds of danger and ruin. It is a gift that makes us wise. And it is a gift that matures us.